him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadon. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand, and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand, and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. Hey, as we jump into this text, let me ask you this question. How would you know if you were prideful or arrogant? Like besides somebody screaming at your face, you're arrogant. Like how how would you know if you're moving down the road towards pride and arrogance? It's challenging. I don't think anybody who is prideful thinks they're prideful or they would deal with their prideful unless they're like just full-blown like malignant narcissist but but most people are unaware of that so this question gets posed to us from looking over the shoulders of these religious leaders who have this arrogance and this pride that actually keeps them from receiving grace and turning to Jesus so the question isn't just like a theoretical question it's actually a a really important question because if we have an insidious pride inside of us if there's an arrogance that pushes away people and advice and help and correction we might actually even be protecting ourselves from God himself we might might push away actually places where we could receive grace 
And I want to just ask you that question because I want to just pray that God would soften our hearts. Again, I don't think anybody who is going down the road towards pride is aware of that. By its nature, Jesus says it's like leaven. It's really small, almost unnoticeable, but its effect is real. It's incremental, but it's real. And so in that space, I wanted to ask the Spirit of God just to speak to us. Maybe he'll speak a specific word to you about places in your heart and life where you are leaning towards some sort of self-sufficiency or some sort of arrogance, some sort of pride. And I think the text gives us a, a foundation in God's grace that gives us freedom to actually explore, are we dealing with pride? Because if God's the kind of God who welcomes outsiders and he's the kind of God who multiplies this bread and is gracious, then he's the kind of God who can handle our struggle with arrogance and pride and we can come to him. We can ask for his help. So, so would you just bow with me real quick and um, just ask in your own heart by yourself, God, would you expose pride? It's probably not a question of like, if but where are you struggling with pride? We probably shouldn't do a binary like some are and some are. I think all of us do and are. So would you just ask God, hey, would you help me see where I'm struggling with this and would you speak to me? Pray that real quick for yourself and then I'll pray over us. all-knowing, all-powerful, all-seeing God, as we ask this question, you already know it. You know what's in seed form. You know what is beginning to blossom. You know what has strongholds and deep roots in our heart. Would you help us? Would you speak to us? Would you uh, do your gracious, uprooting work of things in our hearts that would lead us away from you? Uh, There are lots of reasons, uh, but they are all have insidious kind of motivations to keep us from you. So we ask for your help. So would you give us um, compassionate hearts for ourselves where we don't judge too harshly, where we can be open and we can receive? And then would you, would you strengthen us? So I pray, I pray for mercy and I pray for courage. Would you give us grace to see ourselves clearly and bring our real selves to you? Because uh, that's the self that you can heal. You, you can't heal ideal things or perceived things. You only heal real things. So would you help us bring our real heart to you? And I pray across this whole room you would give uh, an abiding confidence that you're the kind of God who can handle our hearts. We can bring them to you. You're trustworthy. And you've actually sent your son to do something about our pride and arrogance. Uh, So it's not a place where we just try harder and do better. You've done all the work. So we we just pray a gospel gracious, good news foundation for what we're about to hear from this text. We, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, hey, if you haven't been with us, we've been journeying through Matthew, and we come to kind of a bridge passage. It both is looking back to the text we were in last week, and then it's looking forward. So we're taking really two stories, this feeding of the 4,000, and then this interaction with these religious leaders. And if you just let your eyes fall to the page, what you'll see Right above our Feeding of the 4,000 story is a healing episode that Jesus has, which is on the heels of him dealing with a Canaanite woman. And I won't re-preach last week's sermon, but last week we got a chance to watch Jesus interact with an outsider. 
Somebody who knew they were an outsider, somebody who knew they had need. Jesus is physically in the territory of the Gentiles, not the Jews. So he's out in their region. He's dealing with a woman that's called a Canaanite, which is the ancient enemies of God. We're told that that she's a woman. We're told that her daughter is demon-possessed, and Jesus interacts with her. And it's kind of a complicated story, but in the sense we, we saw him interacting with her graciously, and there's this conversation about scraps that fall from the table. And wouldn't God be so gracious as simply just to give scraps to the dogs that are underneath the table, thinking of herself in that space, humbly saying, I don't deserve anything, I'm in need, but God, wouldn't you even be gracious to let scraps fall off the children's table onto the floor for those of us on the outside to receive? And Jesus in that moment affirms her faith, he, he sees her, he actually celebrates her faith And then the next scene is this feeding of the 4,000, which we said last week is to communicate to us it's not just that he's giving scraps that barely get us by. He's providing an abundant table. So he's still in Gentile territory when he does this feeding of the 4,000, and it's, it's meant to graphically say to us, He's not just letting scraps fall, he's multiplying, he's taking these little loaves and he's giving this huge feast for tons of people. Far from scarcity, this is about abundance. And if you've been walking with Matthew for even longer, you know we've already seen a feeding of the 5,000. So there's some question here, is this the same feeding and there's just like an error, they just mess the numbers up? And I think the best way to understand this is I know these are two separate scenes in two separate regions. There's a ton that's similar about them, but there's enough that's different that we know historically. These are are two different things that are going on. The feeding of the 5,000 takes place in primarily Jewish territory with God's covenant people he's been working with for millennium. And then this feeding takes place in Gentile territory. And it's a really vivid, graphic, clear explanation that Christ came for the whole world. John 6, Jesus will say that he actually is the bread of life. He'll stand after the feeding of the 5,000. He'll declare that he's the one who actually came to save and rescue and feed. And we say, who did you come to rescue and feed? Is it the dogs under the table or can they actually come as well? And we see in this passage a broad invitation to all who will believe Christ has set a banqueting table for them. And then this food scene moves forward to an illustration with the Pharisees and Sadducees. And Jesus now talks about leaven, about yeast that would be in bread. So the 4,000 feeding story goes backwards and it goes forward. I just say that to you because I think Matthew is telling us a lot of beautiful things at one time and they they actually fit together. What we see in this text about the warning for the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the pride they feel is actually meant to be rooted and laid on top of the grace and the mercy and the abundant provision that we just saw in the passage previous so that we hear the correction and the rebuke and the challenge still in a context of grace. I believe every warning in the scripture is a is a welcome and an invitation. God loves us enough to expose what's going on in our hearts so that we will actually then begin to receive him. Sometimes it's loud, sometimes it's brash, sometimes it's uncomfortable, but it's always rooted in grace. To expose someone's need for grace is a gracious thing. So we have this story of the feeding of the 4,000 that helps us actually engage with this question of our own pride. And I'm, I'm laboring there so that when I turn to you again and say, so where is that pride? Where is the arrogance kind of growing inside your heart? You won't hear it with a condemning, do better, try harder, fix yourself 
kind of angle, you'll hear it as an invitation. Oh, I don't, I don't have to do that. Because pride and self-reliance are rooted in the idea that I have to take care of myself. But if God's the kind of God that takes a couple of loaves and a few fish and feeds thousands of people, then surely he can handle my reputation and my identity and my sex life and my money and my job and my marriage and my singleness and my kids and my health issues. If he can take this bread so small and just blow it up and multiply it, then surely the things I'm carrying that I need help with where I've gotten off track, have, have a gracious application to them as well. I want to walk through the text kind of quickly because I want to actually just make some space to answer the question like, how would you know if you're struggling with pride? How would you know? What would it look like? How would you be able to discern some of the signs that you're moving towards this leaven of the Pharisees, right? Because by definition, it's hard, it's hard to see. It's something that happens incrementally, but it's meant to be a question that we ask together and we get to ask underneath the banner of God's grace and his mercy. So I want to talk about abundant provision. I want to talk about an autopsy of our optics, which is a fancy way of saying, how do you actually see things? I was trying to do all A's and then it fell apart and I couldn't do it anymore. So then we'll go insidious teaching and then we'll get back to an A with a gracious anecdote. So we'll talk about abundant provision, an autopsy of our optics, an insidious teaching, and then a gracious antidote. So, so this abundant provision, look with me at the end of chapter 15, starting in verse 32. And there are tons of similarities to what happened with the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 14. But look where it starts with compassion. Jesus called his disciples to him and he said, I have compassion on this crowd. That Jesus interacts with our need, not with scorn, not with incredulity, but with compassion. He sees their need. He has compassion because they've been with him now for three days and they have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling. I didn't come to send them away hungry. I came actually to feed. I am the bread of life. I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And now we have almost an identical repeat of a situation that happened with the 5,000. Disciples say, hey, there's not enough bread. We're out in this desolate place. It's almost verbatim to what happened in chapter 14. He says, well, how many loaves do you have? They bring it to him. This now, instead of five and two, it's seven loaves and two small fish. It's a different scene. It's a different thing. The numbers aren't so important as much as you just see the similarities and the differences. God's doing a similar thing in particular unique ways for the people that are in front of him. He doesn't just repeat the same thing over and over again, but he's doing similar things. His compassionate heart drives him to provide for those who are in need. And he does it slightly differently, but he's doing the same thing. Verse 35, he directs them to come and sit down on the ground. He takes these seven loaves and these fish. And then we see this pattern. He takes it. He gives thanks for it. He breaks it. Then he gives it to them and they distribute it to the crowds. And it says in the next verse that they ate and were satisfied. It goes from three days of hunger to Jesus's compassionate interaction bringing about a satisfaction, a filling, a helping inside of them, both physically, and then you would imagine what that would do to them emotionally and spiritually as they watch God do this amazing thing. So his compassion leads to their satisfaction, and they take up seven basketfuls of broken pieces. Again, there's an abundance. It's not just enough to barely get some to everybody. There's tons left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women, and after sending them away, he gets into a boat and he goes to 
a different region. Now he's going to journey back over to where the Jews primarily reside. Okay, so we see in this text this abundant, beautiful provision. God's the kind of God we said when we dealt with this passage in chapter 14, who isn't just like a glass half full God. He is a glass filling up God. The kingdom has come and Jesus is showing what life in the kingdom is like. He's showing the kind of abundance that happens in his kingdom. And it's the kind of abundance that not just satisfies, but has tons left over. And you struggle with like where you are. You feel like you're barely making it by. You feel like you're barely getting through the day. You have to drink to go to sleep. You have to to wake up with anxiety and start pounding caffeine to get going. You have to self-soothe some point during the day. You look at people and situations, everything around you, you just feel so desperate for something that would help you to cope. It is good news to hear the kingdom of God comes with compassion and satisfaction and with abundant provision. There is plenty for you. God is not a God of scarcity. He's a God of abundant provision. That's the kind of thing we have to keep hearing over and over again. And they, they hear this scene, they see this scene, they know this scene, and then the next scene they struggle with it, which gives us permission just to be honest with where we struggle. So, so we're going to look at these two optics. There's two responses to what Jesus has been teaching, what he's been doing. The Pharisees and the disciples have seen and heard Jesus teach. They've watched his miracles. They've seen him do these kinds of things, and they both have a struggling response, but there's a difference between them. One with these religious leaders is willful unbelief. So we start in verse 1 of 16. The Pharisees and Sadducees, they come to test him. Now most scholars would tell you the Pharisees and Sadducees are kind of sworn enemies. These guys don't normally get along. They normally fight with each other. There's other scenes in the New Testament where like they actually get played against each other because of their beliefs. They don't agree on very, very much. But they come uniting together to come and actually try to trap and test Jesus, they, they bring a, a question to him about signs. Just stop and see the irony here. They say, hey, would you show us a sign from heaven? He's just fed 4,000. He's just healed a ton of people. He just did an exorcism. And that's just not the beginning. He's been doing this for chapter after chapter after chapter for, for, for like a long time. They know the signs. But their optics are such that with willful unbelief, they refuse to see it. There's no amount of evidence or proof God could give to this willful unbelief. They're going to dismiss and explain away. They've explained it away as if Jesus was demonic. They've explained it away as if, as if there's some sort of delusion going on. They've explained it away as false teaching. They've explained away all the miracles that Jesus has done. So there's a willful unbelief. And he calls them evil and adulterous. Just stop for a second and think about the way pride is at play in adultery. So the Bible uses this marital imagery between us and God, right? It shows us his affection, his desire, his choosing, his longing for us. Actually, the scripture says history will end with a great wedding feast as God's united to his people, his bride. And then he'll use unfaithfulness and adultery as a vivid, visceral illustration of what sin is, of of what unfaithfulness looks like. And you can just like feel that, of what it would be like to be cheated on, to have somebody who said they loved you, actually turn and give their love to somebody else. And maybe they're just using that person and dehumanizing them as well. Maybe it's not even really love, but it's still so painful. But think about the way pride is at play in adultery. I mean, you're entitled to something. 
you're not getting what you deserve. You, you, you're owed something and that you see yourself as, as better than the covenant that you made. That there's a way that pride plays itself out. And Jesus is exposing this unbelief, not just as an academic unbelief, but as a heart unbelief. To call it evil and adulterous gets down into the affection. So when we're talking pride and arrogance, we're not just talking about ideas. We're talking about things that are inside of our, of our hearts. Things that actually reflect what we love. And Jesus points out to them, hey, your question isn't a a question of exploration, a question of discovery. It's actually a question of unfaithfulness. I've shown you the signs. We're in a covenant. I've I've given my heart to you, and you actually now turn and give your heart to other lovers. No sign will be given to you, he says in verse 4, except the sign of Jonah which we've seen this same phrase in Matthew chapter 12 when they demanded another sign. So you have two feedings, and now you have just two, two explanations of this sign here, this Jonah sign that's coming out. Right? Matthew doesn't want us to miss this. The repetition should catch our attention. And the sign of Jonah is actually really beautiful. Jonah was an Old Testament prophet that went to the enemies of God, much like the Canaanites. When, when he goes to Nineveh, it's God's enemies. So here's the gospel good news of God's grace going to the Gentiles, going to the enemies. That's happening in Jonah. As is, we're told in Matthew 12, the sign is that Jonah's in the belly of the fish for three days. And the same way Jesus says the Son of Man will be in the ground for three days. He'll, he'll be crucified, he'll be buried, and he'll rise again. The sign will actually be God fulfilling his promise to come and make all things new. There's a gospel sign in this. Both of who the gospel is available to and what Christ says he's going to do. And that's the sign they're going to get. They're going to get what Christ has already told them is going to happen, that they needed a Savior, that he, he came to provide for them. They'll see him actually die. It'll be at their hands, actually, that he's crucified. He'll, he'll be buried, and then he'll powerfully rise again. And that sign is meant to communicate to them that, that he's real. And in that is not just him flexing. It's him making it possible for their forgiveness. What he did when he died on the cross and was buried and rose again is actually making it possible for them to have their sins, their pride, their arrogance, their unbelief dealt with. Because Jesus died not just to show his power, although it was incredibly powerful. Scriptures say he died as a substitute in our place to bear the penalty for our sins. So even in this challenge, even as Jesus is pushing on them a little bit, he's offering them and foreshadowing to them and inviting them to grace. He's saying, oh, the the sign you're going to get is me dying in your place. That's how you'll know I'm real. There's a gracious provision, and in that space we see they can't notice it. They don't have their optics turned to it. They, They choose willful unbelief instead. And then we turn to the next scene with the disciples. They struggle as well, but it's not willful unbelief. It's something about like an anxiety induced amnesia. How about that? There's a bunch of A's there for you. Because they're freaked out and they're scared and they're hungry and they're in the boat. And Jesus says, hey, we just had this scene with the Pharisees. They're demanding a sign. Hey, be careful of the leaven of the Pharisees. Be careful of their teaching. Be careful of the way they live. Be careful of their perspective. Be careful of their unfaithful, adulterous hearts. I know they have power. I know they're seen in the community as those who actually you should aspire to be. But but be careful about them. And all they can think about is their hunger And they go straight to the physical where they actually assume they're in trouble because they didn't bring any bread, they say in verse 7 of chapter 16. 
Jesus hears this conversation and he engages with them. It says in verse 8, Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you have little faith. Like, it's still hard for you to see, isn't it? It's hard for you to connect the dots. It's hard for you to understand by faith all these things that are coming together. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you don't have any bread? Don't you yet perceive? Don't you, don't you see? Don't you remember? Not amnesia, but can't you remember what just happened? And he goes to both of the feedings. Five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls were gathered. That should be enough, right? You experienced this abundant provision. You saw that miracle. There was tons left over. You shouldn't think that I'm concerned about bread, right? Don't, don't forget what I've done, he's saying. And then he goes on, or, or just what happened just a moment ago. Seven loaves and the 4,000. And again, how many baskets you gathered. He's reminding them of what they had forgotten. Their anxiety created a space for them to forget And be forgetful about the gracious, abundant provision of God. How is it then that you fail to understand? They're not speaking to you about bread. I'm talking to you about the leaven of the Pharisees. And then verse 12 says, it clicks for them. Oh, this is like this teaching. This is this way of seeing God and ourselves. That the teaching of the Pharisees that's rooted in pride and arrogance, you're cautioning us about that. That those who have position and are powerful, actually, if they... Uh, hold on to that position and they cling to that power they might actually resist you we should be careful of that even though it's compelling or it sounds persuasive or it's impressive we should be we should be careful about that so there's a a different kind of optics there they they are corrected for that but it's not willful unbelief it's an anxious forgetting which gives you permission to kind of ask in the spaces where you're struggling like where is it willful unbelief where you're just saying no to God? And where in your anxiety are you having a hard time remembering what he's done? But these are the kind of things, maybe we read the scriptures and we kind of have this snobbery over these people and go, I would never forget. If I had experienced that, if I had tasted that bread, no way would I forget. And then just look back to like last week. Look back to last month. Look back to what's happened in COVID. Just look back just a little bit and think about the places where you had an anxiety-induced amnesia, where you were in a jam, you felt a need, and your first response was not, God's provided in the past, he's going to provide now. It's, what do I do? How do I get out of this? How can I meet my own needs? Where is God in this place? That anxiety that produces a sort of amnesia, Jesus exposes, and again, he puts at the solution a reminder of his abundant provision. It's always going to be the gospel and the grace of God and the provision of God that is the antidote to the things that we're feeling. It won't ever be you trying harder and you having note cards and remembering things and snapping your wrists with rubber bands and waking up chanting things in the morning to kind of conjure these things. It's always going to be keeping in your view the grace and mercy and beauty of God. He's the kind of God who goes after his enemies. He's the kind of God that multiplies bread. He's the kind of God who heals. He's the kind of God who does these amazing things over and over and over again, ultimately ending with the sign of Jonah where he will be crucified and buried and raised and then promised to return to come and rescue his people. And our task when it comes to how we see is keeping that story in front of us, to have a gospel-shaped optics. Anxiety is a huge lens by which you see the world. And like incredulity and pride is a huge lens by which you see the world. And what Jesus wants to do in so many ways is give us a gospel lens where we see first his abundant provision. Because it's not just a literary technique to throw this story about the feeding of the 4,000 
up front. It's meant to be a grounding thing. And it doesn't cancel out their anxiety. It just gives it a context to rest on. It's not as if that takes away their hunger. Their hunger is still there, but now they can orient their hunger around what Christ has already done and what he promises to do. Friends, God is not shaming you for where you feel need, for where you feel hunger, for where you're thirsty, for where you have a lack, for where, for where you're struggling. But he wants to kind of rest that hunger and thirst and struggle on what he has already done for you and begin from that place to explain how he wants to work and what he's doing in the world. So that there's this abundant provision and then these kind of misplaced optics, which gives us a chance just to explore for a moment this insidious teaching. Like what's, what's so bad about the Pharisees' teaching? Why, why does he caution them about this leaven? And in the text, what you see is the results of it. You don't necessarily see the actual teaching there, but you see the results of the teaching. The fruit of the teaching is that they resist grace. They resist Jesus himself. They, they actually, in their efforts to honor God, have gotten themselves so twisted up that they're now actually resisting God. Even the God who is fulfilling prophecies that they've memorized, who've been longing for millennium for him to come and return, their arrogance and pride has so crept and spread throughout their hearts that they've now protected themselves from needing grace. And we should stop for a second and go, how does somebody get there? Again, nobody goes down a road of pride thinking that's what it is. Nobody feels pride and just goes, yeah, that's cool. I'm, I'm just there. I like that. Nobody does that. You might call it confidence or you might call it something that you're entitled to. You might call it you, you getting healthy and better than the family of origin that you come from. But nobody sees it as pride. What we have in this text is these two groups, the Pharisees were seen as the legalists. And the Sadducees in some ways were, were a little more relaxed. They were rationalists. They had some deep disbeliefs about the future. Sadducees didn't believe in the supernatural, the resurrection and demons and angels. The supernatural, we read about that in the book of Acts. And the Pharisees are really stringent. They're, they're really dedicated, right? They, they have chosen a legalistic posture to relate to God. But they both start out, I think, zealous. In his book, Accidental Pharisees, the author, uh, Larry Osborne, I think is his name, talks about zeal as the beginning place for Pharisees. It's actually a desire to honor God that then gets distorted and twisted. And the zeal moves away from being zealous for God to being zealous about how you're zealous for God. Which you're like, that's basically the same thing, right? It's not, actually. It's a little bit of a shift. And your focus becomes on what you're focusing on to be able to focus on God. It's the patterns and habits and the things that you're doing. And as you get better at that, guess what? You get better at that. And you began to want to get better at that. And the desire to actually memorize more and do more and sacrifice more and be more stringent and to be more, more focused and more diligent and more disciplined, that becomes the focus. Not why you're being disciplined, why you're pursuing these things, but, but the things themselves become the focus. And then you begin not just to focus on them yourselves, you begin to hold in contempt those who don't focus on those things the same way you do. And you begin to rank and compare and arrogance and pride sneak in. And now the very thing that started aiming your heart towards God has gotten hijacked because of the flesh, because we struggle to believe and remember, because we're full of anxiety, because we have unbelief in our hearts. And now the, the means become the end. And when that happens, it gets really, really gnarly really fast. You get arrogant and prideful and judgmental. You, you start to think about, 
uh, your, your understanding as exclusively correct. And anybody that disagrees with you is either uninformed or an idiot or just simply wrong. You start to focus on second and third layer things as if they're the primary things. And you do that in a way that actually misses the main point. And you begin to excuse yourself for all the bad behavior. So it's fine to be arrogant and hateful because you're right and correct. It's fine for you to be kind of obtuse and offensive because what you're holding on to really matters and you're proving a point. You begin to actually justify your behavior. And so we don't see the teachings in this passage, but, but we see the effects of it. There are some places where we do see the teaching. So, so if you were to flip over to Matthew 23... We'll actually be there in a couple of months, probably, is when we'll be there. But um, we'll walk through So I won't teach that passage now. But it's a section where Jesus says, hey, woe to you, Pharisees. This is what you believe. This is what you've kind of held on to. Let me just kind of fast kind of move through them. He says uh, in verse um, 3 of chapter 23 that they preach, but they don't practice it. They have all the right answers, but they don't actually begin to live it. They're not actually willing to move a finger, he says, towards holiness. Uh, It says also in verse 5 that they do all their deeds to be seen by other people. It's a desire to actually be seen as disciplined, to be seen as holy, to be seen as sincere in your faith, rather than actually having the relationship with God being the center. He says instead, the greatest among you is supposed to be a servant, but you've flipped that around, and you're even using how you're serving as a way to get credibility and to rank and compare He goes on in verse 13, and he says, you've removed grace from people. You've shut out the kingdom from people. You you hold the kingdom of God in people's faces, and you push them away with your extra laws. You prefer law over grace. He says in verse 16, woe to you blind guides. You say if somebody swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if somebody swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by that oath. You take small things, and you have them reverse the order and make them bigger than bigger things. And so you start to focus on the minutiae and the small things to the neglect of stuff he says in verse 23, like mercy and faithfulness and justice. So you actually now tithe on mint and dill and cumin on your spices. You're so diligent to give the right percentage away of things like spices, and yet you don't acknowledge these massive things that are near to the heart of God of justice and mercy and faithfulness. You begin to focus on the wrong thing. It's a disproportionate concern for secondary things. He says that you're full of greed and self-indulgence and hypocrisy and lawlessness. He goes on and on and on to just kind of out their teachings. And you stop and say, how did they get here? How does zeal for God get to this place? And I think when you remove grace and you begin to think the zeal for God is how you're rightly related to God, all of this makes sense. Because the scorecard becomes the most important thing. You proving yourself becomes the most important thing, and then the lies get twisted, things get distorted, and you begin to actually hold people in contempt. So how would you know if you're prideful and arrogant? When people are pleading with you and asking for your help, you say to yourself, hey, they don't understand. They they don't understand that I deserve this. They don't know what it's like to be me. You might even say, hey, they're just jealous of what I have, and they're trying to take this from me. If they weren't so needy themselves, then this thing I'm doing would be fine. They would just be more progressive or enlightened and stop being so prudish. This thing wouldn't be a concern for them. If, if they would just leave me alone and mind their own business, then I would be fine. They would just keep their nose in their own business and out of mine. 
And they start to say, hey, I'm fine with God on my own terms. I don't need anybody else to tell me how to be spiritual and how to have a relationship with Jesus, how to actually walk with God. Those things that maybe sound familiar in your heart, and your language is probably a little different. You've nuanced it some, but it's this defensiveness to what you're doing that actually brings about a pride and an arrogance that Jesus said is like a leaven. It's almost unnoticeable. It's so dang small. It's, it's so close, right? Zeal for God and zeal for zeal for God is just like one word difference. It's so, it's so close, and yet it actually brings about a drastic, dramatic, devastating impact on your life. That, that distortion of grace that is rooted in the idea that I am going to earn God's love on my own, therefore I'll be better than everybody else, therefore I'll be worthy of love, I'll be able to prove that I should have grace, that line of thinking actually puts you in a spot where you move towards even protecting yourself from God's grace. I don't need grace because I have already. And so, so you begin to actually hold God in contempt and demand that he does more and more signs. Prove yourself more and more. What you've done isn't enough. You dying on the cross in my place to forgive me my sins isn't enough. You also have to fill in the blank. Where have you held God in contempt in the last two years? You said, God, it's not fair. What you're doing is not right. You've wondered what, where he is. And again, some of it is a anxiety, amnesia. It's not unbelief. You're just struggling and overwhelmed, and Christ wants to meet you there. But for some of it, it's, it's willful unbelief. You've gotten yourself into a spot where you've held God in contempt and are, are comparing, ranking, organizing, giving him a score and saying, this is what you have to do to be worthy of my love, which is what an adulterer does, to demand that you keep pleasing me if you want to have my love. And it started with a zeal. It started with taking things real serious, and then your flesh and pressure and anxiety and unbelief started sneaking in there, and now all of a sudden it's super, super, super distorted. How would you know if you have pride or arrogance? How would you know if it's starting to grow? There's a resistance to grace. That's a telltale sign. Even in this moment, if you're saying to yourself, I'm going to do better, I'm going to try harder, I'm going to do less of this and more of that, even in that space, it might be because you're still thinking you can earn and deserve rather than simply receive this one who wants to give you what you need, the one who comes to the Canaanite woman, the one who actually multiplies bread, who sets a table for his enemies. And that's the one who actually offers you this beautiful grace, which is the glorious antidote. The sign of Jonah isn't just to stick it to the Pharisees. It's pointing to them what God will do to make all things right, what God will do to actually welcome them to himself. And we read in places like Romans chapter 3 that understanding God's grace is the very thing that actually turns our heart towards him and it stops boasting. To realize that, we, that we're like the Canaanite woman. We don't have anything to offer or earn or prove. We can't actually do something that would actually deserve this. And he simply gives it to us. See that as your story is what it means to be a Christian. To realize you couldn't earn or perform or prove yourself. So Jesus came in your place. He died, took, took on the penalty for all of your sin, your willful unbelief, and the things that you've done out of anxiety. He died for those and made a way for you to actually receive from him. So trust him. Come to the table. Come, come receive. So I would love for you to actually wrestle with this question of pride, even while we take communion. And would you ask the table that Jesus sets in this space to actually nourish your faith in such a way 
that you stop craving and hungering for your own self-approval, your own performance, and you desire this bread from heaven that is Jesus himself. The one who, when we have him, it actually satisfies and we hunger no more, the text says in John chapter 6. I want to just invite you to ask God to speak to you. And because grace is strong, you have permission to be honest. You don't have to worry out of fear. You can actually be brutally honest with the God who already knows your heart and already died in your place to make a provision to atone for all the things that you're going to name, that you're going to wrestle with, that you're going to struggle with. He already cares about that space. And communion is the reminder that he's taking care of it, that it's stable and secure. It's historic. It's already, it's already happened. So for all who are trusting Christ, I want to invite you to come and feast on him. Come and, come and take what he's done and remember that. Let that be the optics. So the way we take communion is we tear a piece of the bread off and we dip in the cup that we serve over here in the front. There's an allergy-free gluten-free station over here to my right, your left, as well as some small little cups. The server will remind you this is the body of Jesus broken for you. This is his blood that's shed for your life. Take that with faith and ask him to speak to you in the places where you need him. Let me pray for us and then we'll worship together. Jesus, thank you for this word. Thanks for your persistent grace in the midst of our persistent struggle. Would you now feed your people and would you call those who are not yet your people to yourself, minister to them. Holy Spirit, would you help us as we wrestle with this question of where have we started placing our hope in what we do rather than what you have done? And then would you nourish us with this truth that you've already taken care of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I come when you're ready.